0: everyone welcome to reverb i'm calvin Pollock here with ryan mitchell hi on today's show we sit down with stephanie r larson assistant professor of rhetoric at carnegie mellon stephanie studies the rhetoric of rape culture from high-profile victim testimonies and multimodal performances to the online discourse of me too
1: and just a quick trigger warning this episode contains some brief graphic descriptions of rape and sexual assault Yeah, this
0: interview got a little heavy, but it was also fascinating and inspiring. We're really excited about it, and we hope you enjoy it.
1: We're thrilled to be joined today by Stephanie Larson, Assistant Professor of Rhetoric here at Carnegie Mellon University. Stephanie, can you give us a brief overview of your research interests, and then maybe talk about what drew you to those interests?
2: Sure. So I research uh, rhetorics of rape culture. I'm currently working on my first book, which is based on my dissertation and tentatively titled How to Discipline a Woman's Body. And in that book, I'm looking at both um, historical and contemporary cases that revolve around the issue of rape culture. And essentially, I try to argue that discourses about rape culture rely on strategies of containment when responding to the problem. And so I'm interested in bodies. I'm interested in affect and sensation. And so when I think about containment, I'm really thinking about how discourses are uncomfortable with women's fleshy violated bodies after rape and so I got into the the project because I had I, I'm a woman I've always been concerned about issues related to rape and in college in particular I was deeply disturbed by the ways that discourses were telling me to be careful to watch out it's all on you meaning the woman to sort of um, self-surveil your own behavior and, and watch out for predators essentially and so that always disturbed me but when I was younger I um, was almost like properly indoctrinated right like I fell trapped to being like well I guess it's on me right and then um, when I got to grad school I took a very winding road to actually stumble upon my dissertation project so for those who don't know what they're studying for their dissertation I did not know until I think my third year I it revived a lot of those initial interests and sort of thinking about how are people telling me how to behave and why is that problematic? And how does that frame the problem of rape? Who's subject to it? And, and who is essentially a perpetrator, right? Or who's targeting whom in in, the, in those instances? But my interest in the body, I don't know where that came from. I, I say to people all the time, it's no surprise I study feeling because I'm always a mess. <laughs> like, I'm always someone who's, like, feeling everything at once. <laughs> and so when I had started um, the project, when I had started my dissertation, Debbie Hahi had published a... Piece on the sensorium in QJS. It was like their centennial issue or something like that. And I read that piece and I was like, oh my God, people are actually concerned with feelings. Like maybe, maybe I should do that work since I apparently have too many feelings. <laughs> And so that kind of led me into that body of scholarship. I was fortunate enough to uh, work with Janelle Johnson, who's at Wisconsin in the communication department. And she was such a mentor to me, both professionally but intellectually. She has a piece on on visceral publics that formed the foundation of my QJS piece. And I just started reading this subset of rhetorical scholarship on sensation, on feeling, on affect. Anyone who was using um, Sarah Ahmed, I, I was just like this stuff makes sense to me. Of course, arguments are grounded in gut reactions, right? And so I kind of, you know, I I did did the work to say, this is a contemporary methodological opening, right? We're starting to think about sensation in really interesting, attractive ways. And I wanna be a part of that. But it was also something that made sense to me. And I think anything you study should make sense to you, right, from some like fundamental deep level.
0: You just referenced the piece that we actually want to talk to you about. So this past March, you published a piece titled Everything Inside Me Was Silenced, Redefining Rape Through Visceral Counterpublicity in the Quarterly Journal of Speech. So can you just briefly explain that concept of visceral counterpublicity and what questions were you thinking about that that concept helped you to answer?
2: Yeah, irony was kind of on my side because I was engaging not even engaging. I was just reading everything I could read about both the Brock Turner letter, Emily Doe's letter that was read aloud in court. I, like many other people, read that letter and just cried, like just cried instantly. It was also being read aloud word for word on on several news outlets. And so it was like a, a unique rhetorical moment where people were starting to pay attention to this woman documenting her experience with rape. But interestingly enough, So many audiences, myself included, were just so emotional while reading it or listening to it, and I couldn't quite figure out what that was. And I didn't want to just say, you know, oh, this is a woman disclosing her experience with rape. Of course, it's emotional. And so I had been trying to think about what it was about that letter that was so fascinating. I stumbled upon or had been thinking about Emma Solkowitz's mattress performance, which was the more widely recognized um, public performance. And um, was, again, interested in it, but didn't really know what to do with it. And started kind of trying to write about how both these women were using their bodies in unique ways. And that actually led me to Solkowitz's other performance, which I analyzed in the piece. So mattress performance was, was kind of what attracted me to it, like many others, because it was so nationally recognized. But this is not a rape, that deeply traumatic and performative and disruptive piece. I ended up analyzing in the piece. To sort of preview both um, cases, so Emily Doe was raped by Brock Turner, who was a Stanford, a a student at Stanford, a a very well-known, or uh, what was perceived to be an up-and-coming swimmer. Like, he he had a future ahead of him, right? And she was raped behind a dumpster at a party, and she was unconscious at the time, and she was found by two Swedish exchange students who saw a man on top of her body not responding. And so... That case actually went to court, which is kind of rare, especially when things happen on college campuses. They usually follow institutional procedures, which is what happened to Solkowitz. But that case actually went to court, and he was convicted of two counts of rape and three counts of sexual assault the two counts of rape were dropped. And he was charged with sexual assault, but his sentence was what many perceived to be very lenient. He was only sentenced six months in jail, and he only served three of those months. And a lot of people have been highly critical of the judge's decision to to do that. The letter was her victim impact statement that she read aloud in court. And that letter, I don't have any actual footage of or any sort of data about her reading that letter letter allowed in court. But the letter circulated widely in public. Uh, like I said, you know, um, newscasters were just reading word for word. They were spending 20 minutes on air just reading this letter. And um, people on Facebook, mothers, young mothers in particular, I was, I was so drawn to the way young mothers were saying, I need to read this to my son. My son needs to hear this letter. And so it, it was really widely received and received well I think people for the most part were moved and respectful of what she was trying to say Emma Solkowitz on the other hand she has she's taken a much more provocative approach and I love her for it but she she did this mattress performance and uh, like I said many people know her for that the this is not a rape performance is a it's hard to to call it something. Because the minute I call it a reenactment, I'm already trying to sort of label it and understand it in those terms. But she essentially performs her rape on camera. And the use of the camera becomes really interesting in those moments. She has sort of four what appear to be almost security cameras, like catching this footage. To backtrack a little bit about her, she had accused her perpetrator of raping her in 2012. And the institution ultimately Failed to see what happened to her as rape because she had admitted to a previous, this is how I sort of perceive it, but she had admitted to a previous consensual sexual relationship with this man. And um, because the ways those institutional regulations are, are written, we're kind of in, in this yes means yes sort of moment. And ultimately, I think because she had said yes consensually once, the committee said, well, I, I can't see this instance as rape because you're admitting to saying yes consensually even at a prior moment. So she was upset about that, and then afterwards, multiple other women had come forward saying that they, too, were raped by the same person, and ultimately, though, the institution did not respond, and it's definitely received a lot of slack for that. So anyway, her performance, This Is Not a Rape, is an attempt to document her experience And what I find fascinating about it is she's showing in that reenactment or that performance, whatever you want to call it, sex can begin consensually and then turn violently non-consensual. And that counts as rape. And that's exactly what the institution was not able to capture. An instance where sex was welcomed and invited and then all of a sudden something happened and she tried to say no and the man did not respond to her. And so she's teaching us, right? She's training us to sort of understand rape in more complex ways, understanding a range of cases that that count as rape. So in her instance, she's trying to say sex can begin consensually and then turn non-consensual. And in Doe's case, she's trying to say rape happens even though, to be blunt, a penis was not present in the act. That's exactly what happened. So the the judge ultimately said he used his fingers but not his penis. That's why this counts as sexual assault not rape. And both these performances are turning to their bodies to say, "Well, I'm going to show you why it's rape." And so that's what led me to the visceral, right? Because they're intentionally trying to make audiences feel pain in the way that they felt pain. And so in um, Emily Joe's letter in particular, she turns to like the grit of her body. And so I was really drawn to the way she describes her feeling you know the grit of the grit of the pavement pulling leaves out of her hair being documented and measured blood samples being taken like it was just this like raw experience and those are visceral moments right they are moments where you're sort of like turning to wounds in your body these these areas that connect your insides and outsides in order to um inspire some sort of reaction in audiences. I had read Janelle's piece on visceral publics around that time, and I love that piece. I think it's a beautiful piece, and I have nothing bad to say about it, but one thing I thought she wasn't thinking about, there's a key quote in that piece that says something along the lines of, it's feeling that congeals publics. It's feelings that bring us together. It's feelings that constitute publics, and I think that's true, but in the case of these two women, it's, it's feelings that are attempts to constitute breaks in the public, right? It's their attempt to say, well, that's a public that I don't belong in. And by turning to my body, I'm actually going to show you how that pub- that public is deeply hostile towards my body. It's a deeply unwelcoming space. And so, you know, it's like all research, it's an incremental step away from what Janelle is doing to say, well, people are using their bodies in, in ways that are saying, you know, the state is failing to see what's happening to me as violence. And that's a problem, right? Another key aspect of it is that Legal discourses rely so much on rational frameworks, right? Um, rational testimonies and things like that. And I love how both women—I mean, I was just so inspired how both women refuse to do that. They refuse to go through any type of legal or institutional framework that would say, like, recount what happened. They don't go through sort of remembering the event. They choose these these alternative forms of engagement.
0: So yeah, you actually draw this distinction in how th- how visceral counter-publicity is deployed in each case. So you have this quote where you say, "While Doe calls audiences to attend to her body's internal experience, in contrast, Sulkovich's form of visceral counter-publicity externalizes the use of the body and aims to amplify a bodily intensity in viewers."
2: Yeah, so the thing about the visceral is whenever the body's openings are introduced, that's when the viscera comes into play, right? And so Doe is definitely drawing attention to her organs in that letter. She talks about the relationship between her brain and her gut. She has this line that says something to the effect of, her organs imploding. If if you're trying to make my organs implode, you're almost there. You're very close. She says something like that. And so she's she is definitely trying to bring audiences into her body and see, look at the ways I'm reacting to this. Look at the ways that pain is so deeply felt at the level of, of my gut, of my organs and things like that. So she takes a more internal approach. Solkowitz, on the other hand, is unapologetic about making audiences feel uncomfortable I mean the, the setup that she introduces before you hit play to watch the performance is intentionally playing with viewers perceptions of consent and their ideas about their role in watching that and so she's, she's trying to like destabilize this relationship between viewer and audience and the ways that viewers are quick to assume rape or not rape and so she's trying to sort of play with that. But in the performance itself, she's trying to make us feel uncomfortable. She's trying to make us feel uncomfortable while watching this. And uh, in the moment where, sh- where sex becomes rape, in particular, she's trying to um, get audiences to pay attention to what happens in bodies in that moment, what happens to female bodies when they attempt to say no, and what happens to perpetrators' bodies when they don't say no, right? But I think her goals are more... They are aimed at building this intensity in viewers to say, Oh my God, I'm watching this. There's no way I can see this as other than rape, right? I I think that she is intentionally trying to make audiences feel deeply uncomfortable while watching it to the point that they say, Okay, I don't need the legal language to understand this case. I can feel it in my gut that this is rape.
1: So, this is a tension that I think you capture really well, especially in your treatment of Sokolowitz's performance, which has to do with the visceral embodied and intense feelings of violation that happen yeah. when consent has been violated. But on the flip side, this question is one that's really large and I don't I'm not even sure if we have time to answer it. Mm-hmm. But if one of the goals of visceral counter publicity is to expressly make yeah. the audience uncomfortable and to have them at least by proxy experience or imagine an experience of sexual violation. Right do we not run the risk of, once again, disregarding the consent of another person? So is Solkowitz's yeah. performance another act of consent negligence? or?
2: Yeah, I don't think so, because I think she's trying to get us to see that consent never happens. Not I don't want to say never, but it typically doesn't happen through yes or no, right? When you engage sexually, you often don't open up a dialogue about consent. And so she's, she's trying to say... We can't write laws and institutional regu- regulations in ways that rely on language. We have to understand consent at the level of the body. We have to understand how um, bodies cringe and, and coil and, and attempt to push back in ways that legal language just can't always capture. It's not good at capturing.
0: Yeah, I I think part of what I'm really fascinated about with this is to what extent you frame this in terms of counter publicity. So it's very counter. It's counter like the kind of institutional norms of juridical language and just dominant publics in general. But I guess a question that occurred to me was to what extent is there embodiment and affect, tacit embodiment and affect in hegemonic discourse? For instance, is there, you know, could we say there's a white, cis, heterosexual male embodiment that's present in those juridical discourses?
2: Oh, absolutely. I think it is the, it is the key figure imagined, right? White male, straight white male embodiment and the perception of rationality, right? Um, I think the law is constructed around that image and it's very bad at acknowledging bodies that don't fall under that umbrella, right? So certainly there is a is a straight white male embodiment that emerges from legal discourse I think the assumptions are such that that body is one that controls itself it's 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 you know it's our classic liberal subjectivity ideals right you are in control of your body you make total judgments based on you have total control over your judgments right and so that body is one that is rational and so when you position it against a body that is attempting to say that body violated me, you are inviting this debate about rationality and irrationality all over again.
1: Your work, I think, speaks to a lot of contemporary feminist discourses surrounding the difficulty that legal definitions of consent actually place on to survivors of sexual assault. And this speaks to the liberal subjectivity that you've just been speaking of. So how is it that Questions of consent, did this happen, did this not happen, did you say yes, did you say no, set up conditions that make it impossible for certain survivors to actually communicate the experiences that they're trying to in front of perhaps a skeptical public.
2: I mean, so I don't know if this quite answers your question, but one thing I I think I'm forgetting to mention is that these cases – the way I analyze these cases, I'm trying to illustrate how uh, legal discourse influences public perceptions. That's really where my work sort of lays. I uh, definitely am drawing from feminist legal studies to understand their analyses of consent in the law. But I'm interested in the way that legal outcomes leak into public discourse in ways that trouble how women talk about rape and talk about sexual assault. And so, if in the case of Emily Doe or Emma Silkwitz, but especially in the case of Emily Doe, If we understand Brock Turner was not found guilty of rape, right, in that outcome, publics perceive what happened as not rape because of the way legal discourses influence and dominate you know, public perceptions of violence and, and, and cultural problems more broadly. And so that's the trickiness, is because the law has nuance. It, it has degrees of assessing sexual assault. It's not it's not totally flawed, right? It's 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 trying. It's just it has problems. But what gets even more complicated is once that legal outcome is, is distributed in, into public discourse, there's no nuance. So Emily Doe wasn't raped because Brock Turner was not found guilty of rape, right? And so it's you know, it conflates those absolutes in really troubling ways. And um, thus, when we start to talk about rape and sexual assault in public, we are dominated by the ways legal outcomes are constructed that that's the limitation I find that we've not yet been talking about how legal outcomes are structuring public conversations.
1: In certain ways, I feel like there's almost a transference of the impossibility of Settling for survivors of rape into more criticisms against these legalistic definitions of guilty or not guilty. Right. So we can't place these definitive value assessments onto experiences which, right. as you, which uh, stay with people mm-hmm. f- probably for their entire lives. And yeah. so, thinking about managing public discomfort as in confusion, right. as being the Affective output of these performances, I think, is a compelling space and one that yeah. in itself butts up against juridical discourses, yes. ultimate telos. Oh,
2: absolutely. So that's the thing is like these visceral acts, they have moved. In the case of Doe and Solkowitz, they're past responding to the state. Like, the state has failed to understand their experiences. That's what counterpublic tactics do. I mean, they're a reaction to the state, most certainly, but they're attempts to call public's attention, to say, hey, there's this subset of the public that is not being recognized. And their attempts to identify consent and violation in embodied and nuanced and visceral ways are really attempts to say, the law is structured around penetration in ways that make it difficult for women to acknowledge violence committed against them in serious ways, right? Because if the law's constructed in such a way to, to define rape by way of the penis, right? And that doesn't happen in the way that the law imagines it, trying to acknowledge violence is very hard, right? Because we're so strictly confined to, that's not rape. And all of a sudden, you start hearing responses say, Then it leaks into this really troubled territory of, well, what really happened? Do you even remember it, right? And so it's this slippery slope of not believing women that is ultimately tied to the way the law is constructed to understand rape.
0: So I guess to that end, from your perspective, what does it mean for this tactic to work? Yes. That's
2: like a very general question. No, that's a great question. And it's a question I always get. So what happens when audiences don't feel what you want them to feel, right? I mean, that's the risk. That's the risk you run. In engaging these kinds of tactics. The, the other risk is that they're deeply personal and deeply risky, right? Like we have people putting their bodies out in public in very provocative ways that can put them at risk. And so I, I don't want to dismiss that fact. That's a really important fact about a visceral counterpublic tactics. The truth is, they don't always work, right? And I think the way to read that is to come back to how conditioned we are by liberal rational discourses that the law assumes, right? So even if audiences may, may have some kind of gut reaction, if they choose not to engage it, and from my perspective, it just illuminates how entrenched we are in rational discourse, like an unwillingness to say, I felt something, and maybe that feeling is making me judge this differently, that's like the best possible case of visceral counterpublic tactics. You're engaging with audiences who f- have failed and don't necessarily want to see what happened to you as violence. Your goal is to say, well, feel what I felt, and maybe that will inspire judgment differently. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a rhetorical tactic, right? It doesn't always work. It's not a surefire thing. Mm-hmm.
1: In these performances, even if they are not successful in a way that we people aren't saying, I feel this way, or it's not adequately getting the types of visceral reactions they want, how does the person constructing or creating the performance factor as an agent inside of it? Because there could be a risk of perpetuating... Victimhood inside of it by constantly drawing attention to the act of violation. Mm-hmm. But it seems like in the performances that you are studying, you're making a very strong case for the fact that the act of communicating the visceral experience of violation becomes in certain ways the ownership of that experience and the yeah. kind of con- control of that narrative. Is that...
2: True. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think one thing I w- might push back on just slightly on what you're saying, and, and though I agree with what you're saying, but one aspect I want to highlight is that embodying victimhood isn't always a bad thing. And that's something that Roxane Gay teaches me every time I read her work. Sometimes taking on the position positionality of a survivor is not helpful. And returning to the fact that you have been victimized by the violence of rape tries to put onus back on the perpetrator. It tries to not sort of dismiss or negate the act itself. And so I've actually, I use victim quite a bit when I write um, because I I think that's right. I think there is something to be said about saying I have been a victim of rape. And if you understand victim, what it means to be a victim from the the pain that I'm trying to sort of transpire through the way I'm communicating, you may slightly understand more what it means to be attacked by someone else, you know, sexually, right, or in any case. So I'm not so scared of victimhood in the ways that discourses, important discourses, have talked about sexual assault and and to be mindful of what it means to sort of categorize someone as a victim. I, I totally acknowledge that body of scholarship as important and necessary, but I'm always drawn to the way folks like Roxanne Gay talk about identifying as a victim in somewhat productive ways.
0: Does the productive side of that come from like accountability? Yeah. Forcing accountability? Yeah.
2: Yeah. And it also leaves open, um, and this is where my piece in Hypatia sort of fleshes this out a little bit more, but it leaves open the recognition that you may still be in pain and you may be in pain for a long time right when we're quick to call women survivors there's an overcoming narrative that undergirds that label in ways that trouble how women actually acknowledge still feeling bad about what happened in a in a variety of, of traumatic ways right real traumatic ways and so absolutely though it's a way to acknowledge that accountability and say someone did this to me so saying you know I'm a survivor um, women who choose to, t- to take that label do so for important reasons. And I recognize them and, and grant them that for sure. But I think women who still return to this label of the victim are are trying to sort of hold open um, the idea that someone did this to them.
1: I think that this brings up a question about you as a scholar, making strategic decisions about how to term and represent these violent acts. So in your piece, the one in uh, QJS, you do Give a warning at the very beginning that there are graphic descriptions of sexual assault and rape inside of this piece. From what you've just been saying about your kind of refusal to reject the victim moniker as being a weakness, it's actually a kind of stance from which we can understand the incredible violation. Do you view your own work as an analyst as an exercise in a type of visceral counter publicity?
0: Oh, that's so meta. Yeah, well, because I will say, like, I found myself reading your extremely detailed description of Sokolovich's performance. It felt to me like you were trying to get the reader to really, really understand the experience that she's conveying.
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely aim for that when I write. If I'm going to attempt to describe how there are rhetorical tactics out there that operate viscerally, I do want readers to sense them, right? That's where sensation becomes really powerful because you start to believe arguments you know, in ways that you may not have otherwise. So yes, I think I'm trying to do that. I don't know if I've ever thought about them as as visceral counterpublic tactics on their own. I think they're drawing on the theories that I'm using to make that claim, but I guess you're right. I mean, I am responding to a public. I am responding to a state-influenced public that, is, that has struggled to understand Rape and sexual assault among many people, so maybe I would say yes. I don't know,
1: <laughs> and I might even push a little farther. You're also writing to a public that, mm-hmm. quite frankly, does not have necessarily the same history of dealing with these incredibly graphic right. sexual right. topics.
2: Right, and that's honestly what drew me to the, these two performances. Like they are unapologetic in trying to make audiences look at the ways and feel the ways violation has, like, taken shape in their bodies. Um, but I will say, I, every time I read um, Emily Doe's letter, she has a line in there that says, I don't want my body anymore. And every time I read that, that line, I cry. I mean, every it, it hits me at my gut. Like, this relationship between seeing your body as an object and not suddenly embodying yourself as a subject. Um, and that's what I think Visceral counterpublicity is at is at its best. It's able to sort of like untangle the ways that we can understand violation, um, the ways that people are objectified and not being not being perceived as subjects by the law. And so, uh, yeah, I, I do aim to kind of illustrate that that sort of work in the ways that I write. It's hard. It's it's very hard to do though. I don't always do it as successfully as I might hope, but.
0: So something we like to do a lot on the show is connect to very current events, like things going on in the news. And, And we are having this conversation right now in the context of Me Too and of the recent Supreme Court confirmation hearings. And so I think we wanted to ask you, how do you see visceral counter publicity working in in these ongoing public conversations which are about rape culture to some extent
2: yeah i just gave a talk about this and there's a piece that i have under review that's sort of related to this Um, it's about me too but i'm not i'm not theorizing what's going on in me too through the lens of visceral counterpublicity. i'm trying to think of it as a, a feminist form of magnitude and it polls, you know, my thinking in in affect and sensation supports a lot of what I'm trying to do in understanding feminist magnitude or feminist megethos, but I think what's going on with Me Too that's, that's provocative is, unlike personal testimonies, testimony on its own has not worked really well for victims of sexual assault, and what happened with Me Too is all of a sudden we had millions of testimonies in very confined form sitting on a news feed that we were then scrolling through. And that act in and of itself is, is an affective engagement, like scrolling through, reading, skimming, reflecting, right? It's there, that is a deeply affective engagement. What I like about thinking about Me Too through the lens of magnitude is a lot of magnitude theories have tried to understand collective engagements as ways to sort of constitute or create beauty. That's kind of how Aristotle initially imagined them. And what Me Too does is the exact opposite. It's saying, look how horrific this experience is. So it's not garnering magnitude to sort of display a coherent picture. It's trying to say, look how like complicated and nonsensical these experiences are in mass form. And so there's something about the list that I find interesting as able to capture the feelings in, in this robust form in ways that individual testimonies on their own are not always able to do that kind of work. I mean, it really was, I think, in a long time, one of the most powerful moments that people were listening, right? It got it, It's gotten a lot of attention, and um, it, you know, I mean, it, it led to actions of high-powerful, high-profile men, in particular, getting fired. But it was the first time in a while people were saying, like, oh, my God, I might believe her, right? Or I might believe this. And that is, like, a quintessential thing that, it's a characteristic that is not often tied to rape disclosures or rape testimonies.
0: Do you see that as like having influenced how the Supreme court hearings played out? That entire controversy relates in so many ways to things we've been talking about already, but like, particularly I'm reminded of how a lot of the Democrats were pushing really hard for the FBI to intervene. And that seems to be kind of relying on this kind of like, heteronormative juridical rational discourse and and to what extent did that influence people when the outcome as a lot of people expected was oh well we couldn't find enough we didn't, evidence,
2: we didn't have the evidence even though we have a woman testifying to it I mean that that's a like that happens all the time you have a woman explaining what happened and everyone's saying well we have no evidence <laughs> and it's like well she did offer quite a long testimony in front of Congress regarding it I think the the problem that happened one of the problems that happened with the, with the Kavanaugh hearings is, Christine Blasey Ford felt trapped to the individual narrative. Her individual narrative couldn't garner the kind of magnitude that perhaps Me Too can. It alone, when the narrative stands alone, people pick apart its tropes. We're quick to say, oh, well, she was drunk. Oh, she doesn't remember. Oh, I mean, Trump did that. You know, he listed all the tropes of rape narratives when he, a couple days later, when he reacted to what, to her testimony. And so the long-form nature of it opens up criticism in ways that employ these rational, legalistic responses, right? But Me Too didn't do that. Me, you you can only use so many characters. Um, and so, you know, people are describing their experiences of being posted up against walls or, you know, groped at work. But there are these quick interactions um, that are trying to make us feel the violence of rape. Ford's testimony, I think, just couldn't— it. It is exactly the ways that Lee Gilmore has identified um, tainted witness, like a a sexual assault victim is always seen as tainted by audiences. Um, She's set up in such a way that she's always on the defense when trying to explain what happened. One thing that I was deeply struck by in the Kavanaugh hearings is how Kavanaugh, a man who deeply embodies the most privileged positionality in this country, is feeling all sorts of things I mean it was like holy shit like it was such an embodied performance and we patted him on the back as a society I mean I didn't but people were responding like look how much you've done to this person like look how distraught he's become through this process and that's startling because when women have those kinds of reactions you're quick to say well she's irrational she's hysterical right she's out of control of her own body Um, we can't believe anything she's saying right now because her body is in excess she's feeling too much right Um, but but Kavanaugh on the the other hand was able to feel all the things um, and display sources of anger that women would never be able to pass in public um, and be applauded for doing. I mean, his ability to um, aggressively speak to women in Congress during that testimony were essentially supported and he was sworn into the US Supreme Court, right? It didn't work against him. And that kind of that kind of affective engagement will always work against women. That's the double standard.
1: It's a double standard and I think that this homosocial kind of patting on the back that we can see people yeah. like Lindsey Graham yeah. or the kind of outrage that the very people on the committee right. expressed for him as right. The kind of constant invocation of his family name being tarnished, him as a family man. Why
2: should we let this ruin his career?
1: Right. And And then being angry for him. So it's not just one man being angry, but it's the kind of man symbol, the privileged man inside of these institutions Mm -hmm. who is angry. And that becomes something that becomes even more difficult for people to speak outside of. There was something you brought up very be- at the very beginning of our interview and that was you made a comment about method and i'm curious about how you conceptualize a methodology for understanding affect especially as you're going into arguments of magnitude so how are you think because typically we think of affect as being in certain ways dialogic from one person to another or this, the, the individual person becomes very, uh, at least in my mind, the forefront of what I'm thinking about with affect. But when we're thinking about a collective affect, when we're thinking about the kind of weight that's put onto us by thousands and millions of testimonies about rape, how do you begin accounting for maybe some of the major through lines inside of those affective performances?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it you have to, if you're someone that's interested in affect or feeling or sensation, you have to read the work of Sarah Ahmed, Elaine Scarry, Judith Butler, Lauren Berlant. These are all women who are so in tune with the way feelings transpire and are transmitted in public. And that's, that's how I see feelings. Like they, it's the exchange, right? That's to me how affect works. I think. Emotions, and I don't like to get bogged down in the debates between emotion and affect because they could be endless, but emotion seems to me to be the naming of a feeling, right? But visceral forms of communication are internal. They are informed by the internal body. They're aware of the porous boundaries of the body. And if you're engaging with questions of violence such as sex, bodily openings are implicated in that discussion, whether we want to acknowledge them or not. And so you have to look for language that is deeply cognizant of bodily intensity, whether it's felt on behalf of the individual and the ways that they're trying to articulate it, or if it's in the way that Solkowitz does it, in the way that she's trying to transmit it publicly, right? So that's to go back to that that discussion of what's the difference. I think Doe is very cognizant of how she can build intensity by turning internally into her own experience. And Solkowitz does the opposite to say fuck that. I'm going to make you feel pretty bad about this, right? And so she is engaging her body in ways that are sort of outward. It's hard, but I think if you're reading those people in particular, you start to account for bodies in much more nuanced ways. And that's where I think I'm contributing to rhetorical studies. I think rhetorical studies has always been concerned with the body. I mean, it's, it's, Aristotle talked about it from day, whatever you know when he was producing or when those dialogues were becoming available we were thinking about the body but people have often thought about the body in two-dimensional forms right we've thought about it in terms of representation and even when we thought about it in terms of protest it's still been like a site of argument it's it hasn't been thought of as an in terms of capacity as like moving or making arguments and so That's the level that I'm trying to work towards. How do bodies do rhetorical work, even when they may not be speaking in traditional, rational ways that we might assume that rhetoric looks like?
1: What I think is also powerful and what I hear you thinking about, especially when you're talking about the kind of discomfort that can be elicited when we think explicitly about the body is the fact that if we have a, a three-dimensional body rather than a two-dimensional okay. body, what we can, in a body that still exists and that we draw attention to all the time, we can flout narrative standards mm-hmm. that don't require a resolution or a yeah. closure. Yeah. And I think that what your analysis of Solkovitz's work is particularly good at capturing that. Yeah. The fact that she... Refuses to allow us to have any sense of closure whether that be tragic or any type of resolution absolutely
2: yeah she wants it to be in your mind for days later yeah
1: and I think that the kind of the recognition of an ongoing body in the world that is still open to is still subject to other types of stimuli that are influenced by trauma Mm -hmm. becomes a powerful way to communicate the lack of closure that we all experience as embodied people right
2: Right. I think, you know, one thing I've been trained to think about and training myself to think about more is flesh. Flesh is the way to engage with the body. Like we have to think about flesh, like the tangible corporeal experience of of being a person in this world. And um, I've been very influenced by and confused by at the same time. Alexander Wahale has a book, Habeas Viscus. And the subtitle deals with something about the biopolitics of the flesh or something like that. And he talks about how to track these kinds of things. His commitments are in other disciplines, but he says we have to look for these moments where there are barely human life at play. Um, So it's glimmers of hope. It's the grit of a pavement, right? It's these moments where bodies are not even granted as human or man, but they're Seen as less than in ways that illuminate flesh in really powerful ways. And so y- you have to look beyond seeing the body in its whole, in its whole, how you might imagine a body, right? You have to look for these more interactive moments where bodies collide with other things that show us injustice in ways that we may not be capturing otherwise. It's a really great book. It's a very complex book, <laughs> but I love it.
0: Cool. I think it's. Fitting uh the complexity of some of the problems that we've been talking about that we're going to end on kind of an open note but i think i think this is a good place to wrap things up what do you think ryan
1: i am ready to go think about the flash <laughs> <laughs>
0: great yeah, in a very normal way yeah okay. <laughs> thanks so much stephanie this thank you so much this was wonderful
2: time. Thank you and for get, having me.
0: And uh, we will link to your most recent articles uh, in our show notes.
2: Awesome. Thanks so much. <laughs> now we can go back to God. No, know, I'm just right? kidding. <laughs> okay, <we're done. laughs> Let's get
0: real. Our show today was produced by Calvin Pollack and Ryan Mitchell, with editing work by Calvin and Alex Helberg. Background research for this episode was conducted by Colleen Storm, and our co-producers are Caitlin Rossi and Alona Altman. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.